0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Creedle. I have been looking forward to this, this uh, session, this interview for a long time now because it is with uh, Abigail Favale. In fact, Abigail, I should have asked to make sure I pronounced your name correctly. That's probably wrong. What, how do you No, no, your no, that name?
1: was really close. That was okay. really close. It's Favale.
0: Favale, okay. Uh, so I'm interviewing Abigail Favale today about her new book called The Genesis of Gender. Uh, I cannot recommend this book highly enough to you all. I just read it recently and I read it in like one afternoon. Uh, I found it really fascinating. Some of the ideas I was already familiar with, some many I was not. And even the ones that I was already familiar with, uh, Abigail really expounds um, and elaborates on in a very uh, detailed, helpful, rich way. So Abigail, absolutely love the book. Everyone go buy it. It's called The Genesis of Gender, A Christian Theory, published by Ignatius. You can buy it directly from Ignatius and avoid, uh, avoid Amazon. Um, but I love it. Go buy it. Abigail, welcome to Creedle.
1: Thanks so much. This is fun.
0: Yeah, I'm super excited about it. There's just so much to talk to you. Uh, I know that you have recently moved across the country from your previous position at George Fox University to uh, the University of Notre Dame. And I've got a slightly longer bio that I'm going to read for my my listeners here. And then we can go ahead and get started with, with my questions that I've got. So Abigail Favali, Ph.D., is a writer and professor in the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. She has an academic background in gender studies and feminist literary criticism, and now writes and teaches on topics related to women and gender from a Catholic perspective. Her latest book, The Genesis of Gender, A Christian Theory, was just released in June 2022 by Ignatius Press. Abigail was received into the Catholic Church in 2014, and her conversion memoir, Into the Deep, An Unlikely Catholic Conversion, traces her journey from birthright evangelicalism to postmodern feminism to Roman Catholicism. Abigail's essays and short stories have appeared in print and online for publications such as First Things, The Atlantic, Church Life, and Potomac Review. She was awarded the J.F. Powers Prize for short fiction in 2017, and Abigail lives with her husband and four children now in South Bend, Indiana. Congrats on the move, Abigail. Congrats on the position at Notre Dame. And yeah, yeah welcome thank again you. to Creedle. Thanks. Let's start here on this. Uh, actually, I did want to tell you your, your, fir- your conversion memoir, which I have not read, Into the Deep. Uh, I only found about it, found out about it, as I was um, getting my copy of the Genesis of Gender. But you'll be you'll be pleased to know that the tagline of the Credo Podcast is "Cast into the Deep," and it started with like being podcast into the deep as a play on <laughs> a play on the Duke and Altum from jb Two. Yeah. Um, but yeah, cast into the deep. So uh, I love mm-hmm. this idea of going forth into the culture and and casting into the deep. We're not gonna we're not gonna try to find fish in shallow water. We're going to obey the words of Jesus and, and go straight out into the deep. So I love that. Um, let's talk though about this book, the Genesis of Gender. We're in this really important, I think, cultural moment. Abigail, you you may agree with me. Uh, you probably do, since you wrote a book about it. <laughs> but uh, we're in this very important cultural moment in which the entire world is confused by ideas of sex and gender. Why did you write this book? Uh, and sort of, what's the genesis for for this book? As you're, you know, I think we're, I would love to talk about your sort of intellectual journey in how you got to where you find yourself today from being a feminist literary critic to uh, being on uh, the faculty at at the University of Notre Dame. But why did you write the book? And how did you find yourself here writing this book?
1: Right? Well, I actually set out to write a different book more broadly on feminism and Catholicism. But then when I got to this chapter on gender, it just kept growing into because I was like, Oh, I'll do a chapter on gender. And then I was like, Oh, well, shoot, I need to do a chapter on sex. And then it just the more research i was doing as well i think once once i began to get immersed more in what was going on i think on the the more practical level because i'm very familiar with the theoretical stuff i've taught it for years but then seeing how those ideas are taking on new forms and having very real effects on people's lives um especially the the medicalization of of gender nonconformity that's happening yeah. especially among young people so that I was aware of that, but I don't think to the extent. And so it was one of these books that began to write itself in a way in a different direction. So I, um, yeah, like you, you did sketch out a little bit of my, my intellectual journey. And if you, if you do want the full story that into the deep book is where, is where you'll find it um, for your listeners. So, but yeah, I was raised evangelical in the Western United States and kind of Mormon land. And, uh, When I went to college at a Christian college, I became really interested in questions about womanhood and roles and gender because I I wasn't really satisfied with the narratives about women that I had been raised in. And I didn't really fit those narratives that well. Um, And so I kind of dove headfirst into feminist theory, feminist theology, feminist philosophy, feminist biblical criticism. And I was like, yes, this is it. This (laughs) This is where I'll find all my answers. Um, and eventually, though, I think the more immersed I was in feminist philosophy, the more I adopted an implicit worldview of, you know, I, I call it postmodernism for lack of a more precise term, but um a a more of a postmodern and feminist outlook toward Christianity. So something that was much more suspicious, that was much more suspicious of absolutes in general, but also especially. Christian tradition, Christian scripture. Um, and so it really, I think eventually became, um, a wall between myself and and God. And then toward the end of my twenties, I had a baby and I was like, what's going on? This is crazy. And, um, I think it disrupted some of my neat, too neat and too tidy feminist assumptions enough that I think I was open to the grace of God again. And then I really abruptly became Catholic and I became Catholic before a lot of my feminist objections were totally resolved. And so I would say my worldview conversion didn't unfold until actually after I became Catholic, um, kind of the first two or three years of being Catholic. So now what I try to do in my writing and in my work is to bring some insider knowledge that I have about feminist theory and gender studies, and then um, bring that into hopefully fruitful dialogue with Catholicism to help Catholics navigate this um, pretty confusing terrain, I think, that we're in.
0: Well, I'm glad that you are now writing on this. I think we, we need people who can provide this sort of insider perspective, but not even necessarily insider, just really specialized. Um, there are a lot of Catholic commentators today I certainly won't name names, but a lot of Catholic commentators who make all these videos and record all these talks and everything, and even write about gender and gender ideology, and they don't have the type of academic, like deep subject matter expertise that people like you have. And so I think it's really helpful to read someone like you and learn from someone like you who has studied these ideas of sex and gender at the highest levels of the academy, and then recognize the richness of the Catholic tradition on these matters and change your mind on a lot of them and can sort of chart that path for people who are in your, you know, following in your wake, hopefully following in your wake. Um, can we talk about feminism, the sort of development of feminism? Because you trace this a lot in your book with the various waves of fem- feminism, and you end by suggesting that, not the book, we end the sort of survey by suggesting there's, there's maybe a fifth wave. I think th- there's a good argument for a fifth wave even. But we, we go from universal suffrage, women should have the same right to vote that men have, to this, this, um, what I would characterize as a really sort of incoherent position now that, you know, there's no such thing as, uh, as women or to sort of assume biology is to adopt an essentialist definition of women. And the, 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 the train of thought connecting those two things is less than 100 years, right? In less than 100 years, we get from one to the other. So can we briefly, in far less than 100 years, maybe like five minutes, can we briefly sketch out how exactly that happened and how we got here, where, where are the waves along the way and who are maybe some of the key figures who contributed different, uh, understandings along the way. Sure.
1: So yeah, fe- I, I guess one prefacing thought is that feminist theory, um, tends to be grafted onto other philosophical systems rather than yeah. having its own philosophical system, which is one reason why you have so many different kinds of feminism, um so, I would say in the first wave of feminism, it's very much based in classic liberalism, right so it takes liberal values for granted and it simply wants to expand those same rights and um, legal protections to women that men have
0: like like property and legal representation exactly. and yes. suffrage, yeah
1: right, being able to vote, serving on a jury, um being able to have parental custody rights, you know inherit property so those are things or access to education um. And there was, once those, those rights were won, the feminist movement really went dormant. In fact, it seemed to be over like, okay, we achieved what we wanted. Um, and so there were a, a good couple of decades between the next wave of feminism, which would um, erupt in the late 1960s, but really be in the seventies, the kind of women's liberation movement or the second wave. And one figure that comes between the, those two waves I think is really vital. And part of the story that I tell in the book, and that's Simone de Beauvoir, who's a feminist, existentialist philosopher, French philosopher. And she writes this book called The Second Sex in 1949. So between the first two waves of feminism. But in that book, she coins not the term gender or gender identity, but the concept that gender would soon come to name. And so she has this line that that reads one is not born, but rather becomes a woman. So in that line and in her thinking in that book, she kind of is beginning to make a distinction between femaleness and womanhood, and that there's femaleness, this kind of brute facticity of being female. But then what woman is, is a much more complex social and cultural construction. And And it's also performed,
0: right? Like it's something that you gender is something that you do, or this identity is something that you do?
1: Um, Yes. I mean, so she's existentialist, right? So she's coming... Though she's coming from a very existentialist framework and the, the basic idea of existentialism is that I got, I always get this mixed up, is that existence precedes essence. So it flips the traditional formulation of essence precedes existence. In other words, what one is, um, is prior to what one does. So she does flip that around, right? So for her to become fully human is to be able to transcend um, the mere facts of our existence are kind of animality, and it's that capacity for transcendence, which she really characterizes as action one's creative action in the world that is what true freedom is for the human being and so women who choose not to do that who give themselves selves over to um imminence she says she she thinks of that as just a as a as a moral failing, a kind of evil so That's her perspective. And I think within her thought there, because of her emphasis on action and transcendence and her really negative characterization of femaleness. So she talks about women being enslaved to the species because of our capacity to gestate and lactate. We're almost more animal. And so we, what transcendence looks like for us is transcending or fighting against um, our, our embodiment as females. So she seems to have a pretty implicitly masculine bias, I would argue. She writes about men kind of male things in a very positive, kind of forceful way, um, whereas as women, she almost seems to have a, con- a contempt for being female and for having babies. And, um, so I think her implicit value system um, was very influential in second wave feminism. So she, she was an influence on Betty Friedan who wrote The Feminine Mystique in An American Woman in the 1960s. And that book, which was much more popular, it wasn't an academic book, really I think was kind of a spark for that second wave of feminism. And so in the second wave of feminism, I think Marxist and socialist thought was much more prominent. So you have, you have this conception of women as an oppressed class, and also this conception of that oppression being what kind of creates what is now called gender. So in the second wave, by this time, you do have the concept of gender and the word gender coming in, coming into the conversation. And so second wave feminists make a distinction between biological sex and then gender, which is the social norms or expressions um, that are attached to sex in a given culture. Um, and that distinction I think is really important um, for for second-wave feminism. And that's also when feminism becomes allied with birth control movement, pro-abortion movement, and where one of the central planks of the feminist platform becomes reproductive rights. But again, that's framed as in order for women to be free, they have to really. As, you know, fight against their femaleness or transcend their femaleness and, and function in the world physiologically as much like men as possible, primarily through contraception and abortion. And in, in the second sex, that was really the utopian vision that Simone de Beauvoir ends on is really that. It's really this a culture where women have unfettered access to contraception and abortion, where things like child rearing are outsourced um, and. Women are totally free then and unencumbered to devote themselves to their creative action. Um, so that, that ends up being, you know, you though she wrote it in 1949, that ends up looking a lot like what the second wave of feminism wanted to achieve. So then the next wave, I guess you would say, would be third wave feminism. So in the 1980s, there's the feminist sex wars between feminists who are anti-pornography, anti-prostitution and then the so-called sex positive feminists. Um, and that shapes, I think the third wave of feminism, which becomes much more about individual expression, transgressing norms, sex positivity. And that's when you have philosopher Judith Butler um, come into the scene as a, a very influential um, gender theorist. And this is also when the field begins to shift away from women's studies to gender studies. So Judith Butler, her primary contribution, I would say, to this whole story of gender is that she takes that classic second wave split, right? Where gender is social, sex is biological. And she says that actually sex itself is also social. So sex itself is also a social construct. So she basically takes any kind of sex-linked category or norm and kind of lumps it all into gender, which she argues is a sort of socially compelled performance that we are all doing constantly, unconsciously, for the most part. And that this performativity, this sustained performance, gives the illusion that men and women really exist when in fact they don't. Like it's just the story we've internalized and then enact in the world. So she then argues that gender is a performance that creates the illusion of an essence,
0: so. Okay, so so Butler's the one who creates this very strong idea of gender as something we perform, right? And in the book, you mention how, and I totally agree, how it's, we have to sort of understand the the academic milieu in which Butler is writing and the cues that she is receiving from people like uh, Foucault. So can you talk about Foucault and the influence of Foucault and others like him, perhaps Derrida? Um, who want to deconstruct everything uh, and then sort of give Butler the license um, to even deconstruct this idea of like being a woman or being a man and just sex in general and how everything then becomes a, a social construct.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. So this is, so Butler is kind of working in a a line of what's called post-structuralism or post-structuralist theory, or sometimes it's just called post-modernist theory or deconstructivist theory. And M- Michel Foucault, I think is, I would say is her primary or one of her key influences and so to to state it very simply uh foucault has has an understanding of reality or what we what we think of as reality or knowledge or truth as being a construct of institutional power and primarily through language right so he has this really interesting analysis and, and you know he has some insightful things to say as well but he in his history of sexuality he talks about how the concept of the homosexual and the heterosexual was this invention of the 19th century and so there's something, he's onto something right there is a sense in which when a society creates a new category that can reshape our perception of reality or i would say perception of reality he would just probably say reality,
0: reality right so yeah. that's
1: the difference i think between you know, someone like what I would argue, which is that the language we use and the categories we use can profoundly shape our perception of what's real, but reality still exists, right? So I, I still want to say we should therefore use language and concepts and categories in a way that corresponds to what is real, right? Whereas what Foucault and Butler, especially Butler, I think is more explicit about this. I think Foucault can be a little more descriptive, whereas Butler, I think, is very intentional and very, very honest about the fact that she, her project related to gender and sex, is to denaturalize heteronormativity or to denaturalize the idea that heterosexuality is more natural than any other kind of sexuality. So, in order to do that, because that's, I think, her main goal, you have to then kind of dismantle or deconstruct the concepts of sex. And gender. So Judith Butler, I would say is very, she's an extreme social constructionist. And even I would even call it kind of an anti-realist. So she doesn't, you know, she acknowledges the fact that, okay, bodies come with certain characteristics, but it's our, it's, it's the way we name them and categorize them that creates the illusion of maleness and femaleness as this as this meaningful binary in the world. So I think her, her thought is incredibly influential in this conversation, because basically she like clears the deck. That's really what, what she does. That, because her, her writings about gender are actually very different from, I think what we're seeing certainly on the popular level, um, the conversation about gender, which actually is very much makes realist claims, like trans women are women. That's a realist claim. That's saying, that's making a claim about being, about, you yeah. know, like a trans woman is really a woman, not just woman is a social construct. So anyone who can inhabit it and is like a real woman, right? Because there right. are only real women. That's not the claim that's often being made. Although you do have some people who are, who are hardcore anti-realists and um, they, they sort of make that claim. But now we have this concept of gender identity, gender identity theory. And the way gender identity is talked about as this this sense of self, the sense of oneself as a woman or a man or other, you know, non-binary. And that sense of self is so true and so real that it's the ground of one's identity. It's the ground of one's sex identity, not just gendered identity, right? Because those two things have now been kind of swished together and conflated. And that's a very essentialist narrative, especially when you hear people say that, you know, A four-year-old can realize or come to know their gender. That's a very essentialist narrative, especially if, say, that four-year-old, let's say it's a boy, that four-year-old boy is suddenly asserting a female gender identity. Well, that's actually at odds with the way he's been socialized, right? So that doesn't fit this, this idea of gender as entirely a social construct. There's nothing natural or innate about it. Any kind of sense that it's essential as an illusion. So that's, this concept of gender identity is very different from Judith Butler, but the way they're connected is that Judith Butler's thought and then it's popular um, iterations, I guess, this trickle down Judith Butler, it really sweeps the deck of all the common sense and reality-based um, understandings of sex and gender. And then that that clears the way for this kind of new essentialism to come in that defines gender in a way that's at odds with the body um, or can be.
0: Yeah. Can we pause here and break that down a little bit? Because (laughs) it sounds to me, it sounds to me like what you're saying is Judith Butler comes in here. And as you said, I think sort of clears the deck and she basically says, we're going to wipe away sort of all of this realist thought and discussion about sex and gender. And we have to recognize that all of this is just performative. All of this is sort of illusory. And none of it is actually real because there is no sort of reality of sex or gender at all. And then that that in clearing the deck, she sort of paves the way Then I think for people to say that there there is no such thing as sex or that that sex is not determinative for gender. But then they sort of showed the philosophical incoherence of their position by then linking it back and making ontological claims about reality based on the clear deck that there is no reality. Mm-hmm. Right, Hence, yeah. hence your, your example of trans women are women, that the existence of a trans woman sort of uh, as, as someone who is trans because of this gender identity in which they construct their own reality for themselves, um, that is a different idea than a trans woman being a woman, which is then sort of like ontologically grounded in the idea that reality is in fact real mm-hmm. and knowable, right?
1: Yes. Right, so those so, are those so, are kind of two. I would say those are those concepts of gender are very much in tension, if not outright contradictory.
0: Yeah, that, that was my next question. Like, how how do we? Is it is the is the problem just basically, uh, sort of people who are ill informed, sort of mapping their own desires onto Judith but- Judith Butler's work, um, or wanting to sort of, um, I guess, to use another academic jargoning word, like reify Butler's mm-hmm claims are, are they just sort of accidentally but but in, you know intentionally in one sense but sort of unknowingly like pitting these two philosophically opposed strains of of thought together to get to those claims or is there is there something else going on here
1: you know this is something i'm thinking through right now like it's this like the dog in my brain is just like gnawing on this right now yeah. <laughs> because i'm really I'm really interested in this question. I don't think like in the book, I don't think I had fully thought through it yet. Um, And I still, I'm still, I'm trying to fully think through it. I think there are are several things going on. One, I would say the people who are really into queer theory, really into, you know, kind of Butlerian postmodern gender theory, queer theory, those people are more likely to, think of gender as this social construct, social construct, this performativity. Just
0: wholesale Butler school. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. It's all so, performative. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Like, like say Andrea Longchu, who's a trans, a trans writer, um, you know, and Chu wrote this piece in the New York Times about how, you know, of course, you know, a sex change won't make me happy. That's not the point, right? It's about this, this kind of self-determination, like unfettered self-determination and unfettered self-creation. So you have that that narrative, but now you have this medicalized gender identity narrative because the gender identity narrative is attached to this medicalization because it's not just about, oh, this kid is trans. Let's celebrate this kid and say, you know, they can be whoever they want to be. That's not what it is. It's like, oh, this kid is trans. And now we need to put them on a medical pathway. We need to block puberty. We need to start cross-sex hormones. So there's this, I think... So one thought is that in order to make the case for those kind of invasive medical interventions for children, right, for people who you, you almost have to have this essentialist narrative, it almost has to be framed in this essentialist narrative that's also attached to rights, rights theory, right? So it's kind of putting it as the next frontier of civil rights and civil rights are about kind of inalienable you know, aspects of who we are. Right. They're kind of grounded in um, concrete aspects of our identity, like sex or mm-hmm. race, you know, these sort of mm-hmm. things. So that's one thought that you can't have this medical model without a kind of essentialist narrative. Because you couldn't, you know, you can't make the argument that gender is a social construct. So, yeah, I mean, if an 11 year old wants to get a mastectomy, like, who cares? Just do you, you know, but. It, 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 almost, it almost goes in the same category as like tattoos and piercings, right? Like you just, you, just, and but even more so, right? It's even more invasive, yeah. um, yeah. and permanent. Uh, so you, you have to kind of have this essentialist narrative to be able to push the medical, the medical side. I also think that there's, that human, that, that, that
0: there's something like really yeah. important about having yeah. consonants yeah, exactly. between gender identity and sex basically. That's yeah. Yes. Okay. Right.
1: So I also think that human beings we tend to think as realists. It's,
0: yeah. I would say that, it's unnatural for us yeah. to
1: think like think an anti-realist. So yes. that's why I, what I think has really kind of happened is, again, Judith Butler has kind of dethroned sex as the ground of femaleness, maleness, manhood, womanhood, girlhood, boyhood, anything in between. All of those categories are now kind of smushed together and they're grounded in gender, no longer the body right? So no longer sex. Sex is just kind of like swept aside. Um, But then because people still think as realists, you know, it's very hard to think as this like hardcore anti-realist, like it's a, it's a real radical kind of move. Um, So I think that's why there's this new realism that has arisen that is not grounded in sex, but is grounded in gender. But gender is so, such an amorphous concept. Like it, it really the way it's described it almost sounds like a synonym of it could be something like mood or personality or just even identity itself right so it's something you feel but that you really are you know if you listen to some people it's very stable and it's not going to change which is why you need to you know transition kids but then for other people it's like ah oh, it's fluid it's a journey it might change who knows right so it's It's really, it's like this eel, you know, that you try to like grab with your hands and then it just goes like, you know, it just slithers away. So,
0: um, I was going to suggest two other things. Uh, one was, one was actually, you just got to it, but it was the sort of, we think as realists anyway, our, like, Mm -hmm. I think our default mode of thinking is as realists, we accept innately that there is some sort of objective truth and we have to be trained otherwise in order to accept that there is not that objective truth. Um, so that was point number 1. Point number 2 is like I wonder if there's something to this idea of belonging and people needing yeah. to people needing to have some sort of belonging to have meaning in their life. And so if you're someone who feels like your gender whatever term we're just you know we'll set that aside and and and, and you know if you feel like your gender does not align with your sex for example, I think you want to believe that you can become whatever you want to actually align with and there's probably some big belonging part of the argument there that you know if i for example identify as a woman i then want to really believe and i i probably do believe i probably convince myself that it is true that i am actually a woman and as a woman then i sort of have a sort of belonging into this group that we call women so that's why it's important to me in this example that trans women are not just trans women they're not some sort of separate category that's Mm. otherized but actually they are women and sort of like there's this belonging this need for belonging this desire for belonging this desire for love even perhaps that is is met through that and so that's why i I would sort of circle back to this this ultimately grounded and realist uh thought based you know despite the sort of butlerian presuppositions or premises of it
1: right exactly Um, yeah it's it's really fascinating to me that the, the kind of Butler radicalism or extremism has has kind of taken this iteration on the ground level um, but I think you're right that when i you know when I look at I guess gender identity theory and the narrative that it produces. It's a very compelling narrative, and I think it—the desires it promises to meet—to meet—are really, de- really good desires and deep desires, and actually very Christian desires. Like you said, belonging—that's a huge one. The desire for belonging, mm-hmm. the desire for acceptance, um, the desire to know who you really are, the desire for a unity of body and soul, the desire for the body to be sacramental to reveal the person. Um, the desire for conversion, right? The desire to put on the new man, right? Like that's, yeah. These are all. It almost takes these deeply Christian desires, or these desires that can be fulfilled only in Christ, but it promises to fulfill them in a in a way that it can't, you know, ultimately.
0: Yeah. No, I love that. Let's let's go back to the gender idea for a minute. I'm looking at the gender bread person, and you re- you even referenced the gender bread person in your book. Mm-hmm. And I think this to the so we've talked about the sort of the, the judith butlers of the world the simone de Beauvoirs, Um, all these people who wrote very dense academic uh, style treatises on sex and gender and they provide i think the intellectual underpinning for the broader gender movement but the way this movement takes off is i think like short quips that can become slogans like trans women are women and little Uh, like pithy explanations of things that people can sort of latch onto despite their complete lack of grounding in reality, um, like the genderbred person. Mm -hmm. And so the first time I I saw this genderbred person, um, I was, I think someone told me that this was like, you know, hung in elementary schools. And I was like, I get why this is hung in elementary schools, because on its face, if you don't think about this, if like, if you don't, if you don't scratch even one millimeter deep on the ideas behind this genderbred person, it can make sense. And so I'm looking at this, I'll include a link to this in the show notes for listeners, but and you, you've probably seen it listeners, but there's a gingerbread man type of character on the screen. And there's an arrow pointing to this, uh, this character's brain that says identity. So that would be gender identity. Gender identity is something that happens in your brain. Yeah. Um, there's an arrow sort of outlining the body uh, called expression. So gender expression is presumably what your body does. Mm-hmm. Then there is an arrow pointing to the character's heart that says attraction. So gender attraction is is whom or presumably what you love. And then there's a arrow pointing to the genital area of this character that says sex, mm-hmm. uh, and it has it has like the the com, 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 the combination symbol of the male, female, and the trans thing all in that that area. Uh, and then below the image on the poster says gender identity uh is womanness manness gender expression is femininity masculinity anatomical sex is femaleness maleness and then identity does not equal expression does not equal sex and gender does not equal sexual orientation and then there's another you know options for sex assigned at birth and then there's uh, more stuff about you know who you're sexually attracted to and then i actually didn't no- didn't notice this the first time i looked at it uh who you're romantically attracted to mm-hmm. uh and maybe I didn't notice it the first time because this is actually genderbred version four. So the genderbred person keeps expanding over mm-hmm. time. Um, but the point is, Abigail, that this is like, it's pithy. It's simple. My child could understand this, even if the ideas are grossly wrong in it. Um, and so maybe let's break down the genderbred person just a little bit and like talk through talk through where these ideas come from and what is wrong or right about them. Maybe the best place to start is like gender versus sex. We've already talked about that a little bit. Mm-hmm. But But what is Gender in relation to sex. What is sex in relation to gender? Uh, are those the same thing? Are they distinctive? Is gender even a real thing at all? Um, is it not helpful to even think about, etc.?
1: Yes, that's a great question. That's <laughs> what <So> another question <laughs> I'm thinking about, um, that I'm constantly like, yes, no, ah. Yeah. Um yeah. So the gender person or the gender unicorns another version of it. Um
0: which look that up right now.
1: Yeah. So. Is not just taught in elementary schools, but like college classrooms. I mean it's it's really this, you know, or HR trainings or, you know, you see it a lot in like student life kind of stuff, context. Um, so it is this cartoonish attempt to present, I would say, gender identity theory is what it really is. It's this distillation of gender identity theory um, in contrast, again, to the anti-realist performativity of Judith Butler. So you have gender identity that is located in the brain or the self-concept, like that's where gender is. And then sex is located just in the genitalia, right? So that's one thing, one feature of gender identity theory is that it takes biological sex. So sex is, sex refers to the organization of the body as a whole in, um, according to a distinct procreative potential. Like that's what sex is. Sex is not just chromosomes. Sex is not just genitalia. Sex is not just secondary sexual characteristics. Sex is the organization of all those characteristics. And according to a particular telos or end, and you have to, so then sex refers to the structure of the the organism as a whole. So gender identity theory, though, it takes sex and it fragments it into all these different characteristics. And it says, Oh yeah, well sex is a constellation. And you know, Some people might have a little bit of this and a little bit of that as if, as, you know, completely overlooking the reality that in 99.9% of human beings, all of those, all of the stars in those constellations come arranged in either constellation A or constellation B. (laughs) Like that's very, a very stable reality. Um, So that's one thing I would say gender identity theory takes sex, which is a holistic category and they fragment it and then reduce it to external genitalia. So they externalize it, reduce it, fragment it. So that's one thing. Um, and then also gender, gender is located in the brain um, or the mind, the self-perception, self-concept. Yeah. That's what gender is. Now it's interesting that the sexual orientation stuff or gender orientation, right? Because if, if gender, and okay, one version of the um gender unicorn that I've seen, again, there are tons of different versions, which is also confusing yeah. because they have to kind right. of update it all the time. Cause things are, right. things are morphing in, in real time. reality
0: is changing before our very eyes. Yes,
1: exactly. Um, so in one version I've seen the description of gender, it doesn't just use the word man or woman and then male, female refers to sex. So what I've seen is that it'll be like woman slash female man slash male. So what something consistently that I see actually is when people who affirm gender identity theory, when they talk about gender, they will use sex terms, they will talk about female, Mm. they will say, you know, you're my gender is female. Um, So even that distinction between like woman versus female, again, is being conflated, or there's equivocation that goes on. And so, but back to my sort of point, I was thinking about sexual attraction. Like, what does it mean to have an innate attraction to to a sex or to a woman? Let's say I'm attracted to women. What does it mean for me, a woman, to be attracted to women? Am I attracted to a person's self-concept? Well, how do I even know what that self-concept is unless I ask them? Right? Is it even possible to be attracted to someone on site? Good
0: point. If so,
1: like what are you attracted to? Right? So you know if sex isn't real if it's assigned at birth if it's this external category that's imposed upon the body then how is it possible to have an innate orientation like to something yeah. that is itself not innate right that doesn't make yeah. any sense um right. so that's that's just another kind of inconsistency i would see in this but it's a very fragmentary view of the human person right and it's um it is and, it, and even though you know you say like my kid can understand this, it's like well, I think that's kind of true, but also it doesn't really hold itself up to scrutiny that well, you know. If you think
0: oh totally yeah, if you I think agree.
1: about it a little bit more than just like okay that's what these terms mean, but if you think about the concepts that are being presented and how those concepts cohere, that's where things start to get a little wonky.
0: I mean, I think even my seven year old, if he, if she was you know looking at this and and seeing like wait, so they're saying that you know, my brother is a boy because the doctor assigned him that at birth. Wait a minute that like she, she wouldn't understand. That's completely ridiculous, <laughs> you know, just on face value. So yeah, I think if you, if you scratch even an inch deep and think about it, it does fall apart. Um, do you have to go in five minutes, Abigail? I definitely want to respect your oh, time. I'm Be fine
1: real. to, to go okay. a little, you know, we can go a l- you know like say like 10 past the hour if you want. okay, started like- so
0: so maybe one more quick question, and I want to ask you about sort of some of the just like the Catholic worldview on this stuff because you close with some beautiful um, stories of you of you engaging with people who are uh, you know trans identifying for example and um, and just the, the plight of these people's lives and I think that obviously charity needs to um, govern all of our actions and thoughts towards these people, but also our policy and there are um, there are good reasons to um, there are good reasons to, well, the best reason to craft policy based on charity towards these people. Uh, the question to me is, you know, like, do we, how do we, how do we best sort of establish, um, our love for these people or show our love for these people and in doing so also help them under, under understand what is true and how their bodies do reveal, um, infinite amounts about us and about God. But before we get to all of that, and I definitely to to end on that note, um, let's talk for a little bit about this idea of intersex, mm-hmm. because this is a very common rebuttal to people who say mm-hmm. sex is, of course, binary. Like I've, I've only known men and women my whole life. Of course it's binary. And then the, uh, the fairly common response from, um, those who, who, uh, adopt more progressive views on sex and gender is no, it's not binary. It's clearly not because there are people who are born intersex. So clearly it's not binary. There are at least three options, male, female, and intersex. And intersex it's, itself can look different. So, really, what we're talking about is a spectrum here. There's even a spectrum of sexual identity, uh, sexuality, um, and you have a very helpful section of your book where you cur- sort of break down this fallacy and you tie it to um, sexual gene expression um, and how there really is no such. There's really no argument for the non-binary existence of sex. Sex is in fact binary. So, can we talk about that a little bit more? Like, maybe help our listeners understand the science behind that mm-hmm. and why the existence of as we as i said intersex individuals you talk about why that maybe is not the best term why the existence of those individuals does not in fact negate the existence of a sexual binary
1: right yeah so this is a this is a question i've been studying for a long time because i started i when i was in a master's degree in gender studies i did work on intersexuality back in the early 2000s so um Right. So I guess the first thing to say is that so intersex refers to, it's a canopy term, an umbrella term. So it it is referring to a range of different physiological conditions that disrupt the typical process of sexual development in some way. So it's not a third sex, it's not, it's not even one thing, right? So that's one, that's one thing that the terminology can make confusing, um, but it actually refers to over a dozen different conditions. A second point that's important is that the vast majority of those conditions do not result in any apparent sexual ambiguity at birth. So some people who have an intersex condition might not even know they have one until they try to have kids. Um, or there, there might be, for example, like vaginal agenesis, which is, um, when the vagina isn't fully formed in a baby, like, She's clearly female. Her entire, again, her entire body is organized according to to that potential. Um, But yet there is some kind of malformation, right? So there are, but she's unambiguously female. So I think to talk about people who have intersex conditions, or a better term is disorders of sexual development, um, or congenital conditions of sexual development, those are better terms. um, To talk about them as if they are somehow exempt from the reality of maleness and femaleness is not only inaccurate, but it is also dehumanizing to these people because yeah. DSDs or these conditions should be understood as atypical variations within femaleness and maleness, not things that are totally outside or in between or on a spectrum. And that when we're talking, so so that's another point would be <clears throat> that um, so those there are conditions, however, that are more complex. They're also a lot more rare that do result in apparent sexual ambiguity at birth. And that's actually, it's those cases that are, that's where the term assi- sex assigned at birth originated. That terminology was used to be used only in reference to such cases of really complex DSDs where sex wasn't apparent or was there was sexual ambiguity at birth. And so then until a more thorough kind of investigation or perhaps the process of of puberty made one sex apparent or the other, the the doctors would assign a sex at birth. So it's interesting that that terminology is now used to apply to all people because the implication is that all people are born sexually ambiguous. But anyway, we're not. Um, So those types of rare DSDs only occur in 0.02% of all live births. So in 99.98% of births, are are sexually unambiguous, clearly male or female, even if there's some sort of atypical physiology going on. So that actually, when I found that figure in my research, I was like, that's I would have almost expected it to be higher. You know, I mean, or the the incidence of complexity, right? Because if you think about the sexual development process and how many things like could go wrong. It's a complex process. Yeah. Um then I, I'm actually surprised how stable and unambiguous sexuality is. But even yeah, in I these, just, yeah. before,
0: before you go on, can I just repeat those numbers a little bit? I'm looking mm-hmm. directly at your book right now because I was surprised at this too. Uh, the number I've heard about intersex conditions is, you know, one to 1. 2% 7. of all live mm-hmm. births. Yeah. So you you cite the sort of, the foundational study for that 1.7% is the number but then you point out this is a pretty broad uh, range It includes things like you know PCOS which is a very mm-hmm. common hormonal disorder or Klinefelter syndrome where a man has an extra x chromosome all these things where people might not even realize they have them until like you said they try to have kids right. um so then when you actually when you actually narrow that down to um conditions that people really mean when they say intersex being these sort of like sexually ambiguous ones it does uh, come down to 0.018% of people mm-hmm. which is actually 100 times lower than that study claims um, and i think that definitely leads me to question the motives of the authors of that study and what they're trying to say there but yeah 0.0, 0 less than 0.02% of all live births right. are sexually ambiguous right. but but let's just take that a little bit further with this question i mean doesn't that show that in 0.02% at least there are real intersex conditions and you know so then we can't say sex is a binary why does that argument fail
1: right so even in these very rare and complex um, disorders of sexual development, one sex or one reproductive niche will be predominant over the other, and you have to look again at the organization of the body as a whole. And also, that might that might not become apparent until the sexual development process, which also happens in puberty. I mean, sexual development is a very prolonged process. Um, but there has never been a documented case of. A truly hermaphroditic human being, so a a, a person capable can, of producing both sex gametes. Right, there are only two sex gametes, and bodies are organized according to the production of one um, or the other. Even if they're not, even if that potential to produce that sex gamete is prevented from being actualized for some reason. Yeah. So this includes, like, even if you're infertile, your your body is still organized according to a, a certain procreative potential so even in the most complex dsds the the focus here should be on what that individual person needs they should be able to have an inter- interdisciplinary care team that can look at hormones that can look at the body as a whole that can see what's happening that can say okay what kind of medical support is required that should be it should not be about upending the sex binary for the entire world. Like so right. I think using <laughs> these people as or these conditions, right? That's another thing too. Intersex is not an identity. These are physiological conditions that are objectively diagnosable. They have nothing to do yeah. with one's feeling about oneself. Right. It's and that's another distinction because if you have a DSD, like you have it whether you want to or not, whether you feel like you have it or not, right? It's it's this objective condition of the body. And again, the the focus should be on that person having um, the kind of support that they need in their unique situation, because the really complex yeah. DSDs tend to be very unique and and very individualized. Um, so that's that's kind of where we where we are. So it's it's um, dehumanizing, I think, to use the existence of these these conditions to say that these people aren't really male or female, but something other. And it's also dehumanizing to use them for political purposes.
0: Uh, completely makes sense. Uh, it's It's fairly alarming when you realize that the gender madness in which we live today is instigated by things as flimsy as a, you know, deconstructivist who denies the existence of objective reality or the you know the existence of ambiguous sexual conditions in zero point zero one eight percent of live births, and we've just used these things to upend our entire understanding of the human person and of sexual identity. Um, and I would argue, to our great detriment, I you know despite the despite what people would say, our great strides today in our understanding of sexual identity. I don't see people any happier in who they are as people and in in how they relate to people of the same and the opposite sex. I see just a lot of people who are miserable. Uh, a lot of people who are really searching for answers. So I know you have to go, uh, and I would love to have you back on the show to talk maybe more at length about this next question. But just in like two minutes, Abigail, you converted to, to Catholicism after studying a lot of feminist theory and being a feminist literary, crit- literary critic um, and being very well acquainted with these ideas. What was it about the Catholic Church's vision of the human person? And I know you said that even sort of, you know, not until two or three years after your conversion did you really sort of buy into it wholesale. but in that process, from, from you first thinking, maybe there's something to this Catholic thing, to you being like, I get it and I, I buy it, you know, um, what was it that you found so compelling about the Catholic Church's articulation of the human person and about our, our sexuality and our sexual identity?
1: Well, I think that there were a lot of things, but one I would say is that how incarnational Catholicism is and the, the dignity that is given to the body, especially the sex body, and the female body and female human beings. Um, because I think I think because feminist theory, I mean feminism is supposed to be about defending the dignity of women. But also feminist theory has this suspicion toward even defining what a woman is. And it's that's not a new that's not a new suspicion. That's feminist theory since the second wave has been pretty resistant to any kind of essentialism. But I wanted something more than that. I wanted to know like what does it mean to be a woman. I had, I mean, I had this very, mm. you know, I had this conviction that it mattered <laughs> that it was real yeah. and it mattered you know, that, that being a woman is not something that I chose or not even something I want all the time, but it's this reality I have to reckon with. And I, I want to understand that more deeply, but I think feminism can only take that question so far because it's not really willing to make claims about being, um, or about reality. and. Uh, I also think that the Catholic worldview, once I really entered into it and could see it from the inside, is so coherent and so beautiful that even though there was this period of time where, for me, the hardest issue to my hardest objection to deal with was same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. And so there was this time when I had I had encountered some of the rich theology about sexual difference and I was like this is amazing I love it I love it but then I tried to kind of hold on to that while also holding on to my um my support for same sex marriage and I tried to do that for a while but like I couldn't escape the fact that I was I had to I had to have cognitive dissonance in order to do that and I yeah. think I had been living in cognitive dissonance for so long that I was just hungry for something that was true and that was whole there was this totality um and that that was really that was really compelling and still is um i i just think that the coherence of a catholic understanding of the human person and all of what is there's nothing out there like it
0: the um one of my favorite parts of your book i'm a huge flannery o'connor fan one of my favorite parts of the book is when you have this little brief explanation of flannery o'connor's short story the temple of the holy ghost and uh I won't, I won't go into detail and we're out of time, but basically it's just a, it's a beautiful reflection and you explicate it well, Abigail, um, on how loved every single human being is, regardless of how much they conform or do not conform to, uh, what we think a man or a woman needs to be. And I think many of, uh, many of the young people, especially young people today who are in the throes of anguish about their own identity are people who are really questioning whether or not they are loved. Uh, and what I think is most beautiful about, about the Catholic worldview is its ardent proclamation to each and every person that, yes, you are loved, regardless of what you do, regardless of what you've done, regardless of who you are, uh, or who you think you are, or how you identify. You are richly and deeply loved by your Creator, and you are made by Him, and you are made to be loved by Him. To me, I think that's wonderful. And, and O'Connor captures it well in this story. And as she even said, commenting to a friend later about that story, the one person who's closest to heaven is the sort of um sexual nonconformist in the story the one who was born different um and i just think it's a beautiful reflection of how how love we all are and that's what i think is is the first task of the catholic on this this thing to make everyone know that they are loved and that we didn't get to talk about it, abigail but i will say the last two chapters of your book i think you really you hammer this point home and you tell some stories of your personal interactions with um with people who are struggling with questions of sexuality and identity um and you love them very well and you articulate uh, why exactly they are loved, and you encourage others to do the same. So I think that's really good. Would love to have you on another time to talk more about that because that's that's an even more important part of the conversation. But I think it's important to lay the lay the foundation first. So
1: yeah, I'm really um, glad you landed there, and because um, that is so that is so important.
0: Yeah, it really is. Uh, and I mean, I landed there, but you you landed there in your book, which I again encourage everyone to pick up. The Genesis of Gender, super super good. Abigail, if you do want to come back on, let me know. We, we can dive into all of that stuff uh, and more. So it was It was a pleasure to have you. To my listeners, thanks so much for listening. Go buy Abigail's book. Send me a note if you have any questions for her. I can pass them on Zach, Z-A-C, at creedlepodcast.com And until next time, God bless you.